Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. In each episode, we bring you new ideas and insights from some of the greatest business and thought leaders to help you think more deeply and lead more effectively so that you can be a great leader too. Here again is your host, best-selling author, speaker, and unconsultant, Bryce Hoffman. Hello, my guest today is Mark Cox, president of The Company Spirit and author of the book, The Business Case for Love. Drawing from his own experience working with over 2,000 executives around the world, first with BBDO and then as an independent marketing consultant, Mark examines how toxic cultures, narcissistic leadership, unhappy employees, and poor customer experiences destroy customer loyalty. And he outlines a novel approach to creating an authentic company culture based on the quality of relationships and memorable employee and customer experiences. I first met Mark in London in 2019, and I was immediately impressed by the ways his leadership philosophy aligned with that of my mentor, legendary CEO Alan Mulally. Both of these men believe that love is an essential and underutilized tool for business leaders today. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Bryce. And it's just lovely to be talking to you again. Tell me, and more importantly, tell our listeners, if you will, what is the business case for love? Well, the business case for love originated with with me trying to talk about what I believed in, in terms of my work. My focus is company culture. And I had a very simple view, which I still hold now, but I had a very simple view at the beginning, which is if you want if you want your customers to love you as a company or the customer experience, is you have to start with the employees loving what they do. And in order to do that, they have to feel really excited and engaged and empowered by what I call the company spirit, which is essentially the values, the beliefs, the, the view of the sense of purpose of the organization. And um, it's interesting looking back on those days because the word love was incredibly divisive. And I, it still makes me laugh that in my early presentations, twice people said to me, well, you know, I quite like what you're talking about, but if, you're, if we're going to present on to the board or to the leadership team, have you got another word for love? because people were <laughs> frightened by it because actually it was a I was I was I was turning up the volume on the emotional engagement so right to now I mean 12 13 years on um, I've uh, obviously written a book and which which came out last year which basically brings to life the story of the business case for love so I find this concept really interesting because my mentor Alan Mulally is a big believer in what he calls loving up your customers, loving up your employees, loving up your business partners, loving up your vendors, your suppliers, everybody you work with. And he really he really means it. And he did this in a very demonstrative way when he took over Ford back in the end of 2006. He literally brought all of Ford's dealers from North America to Detroit to the Lions football stadium, which, which his boss, Bill Ford, happened to own. And he had the company's entire sales staff in the infield. And he told them, turn around and tell them, we love you. And of course, to your point, people are uncomfortable with this. They didn't know it was coming. And the Ford sales employees kind of snickered and 
turned around and half heartedly said, oh, we love you. You know, Alan was said, no, say it like you mean it. You better love these people because these are the people who sell our cars and trucks. And if, if, if you're not loving them, your job is to manage our relationship with them. If you're not loving them, then, then we all need to be looking for another job. And that was such a powerful moment. And I talked with dealers who were in the stands there. They told me they had tears streaming down their cheeks. And it seems like, you know, such a kind of hokey thing, but it was a powerful thing that really went a long way to, to changing the dynamic at a company that was basically at war with its dealers before that point. And of course, they followed it up with actions. But that's what really intrigued me about, about your idea of the business case for love is I, I saw with my own eyes how powerful it could be. Well, I th- I th- you know, it's it's a, it's a fantastic story, Bat, uh, and uh, what's well, not a story? It's a, it's a true story, and I think one of the things that has accelerated, if you like, since those days, is that employees. I mean, the vast majority of employees I work for, uh, I've worked with in terms of company, you know, the various companies I've worked with, the vast majority actually really want to work for a company they believe in, and I think that's in many ways, I think, being the generator of a change that to me is quite noticeable is that most people want to feel proud of the company they work for. Most people want it to have a sense of purpose. They want it to have some beliefs. They want it to have some values. And that's you know particularly true of our dear millennials. Uh, yes. and, and it's even more true of Gen Z. You know, so so if you've got if you think you've got issues with the millennial lot, wait till the Wait till Gen Z really hit the uh, hit the employment side because they're very clear in, in terms of what they want, and I think that is a generational thing. And I think they looked at a lot of what was going on in business. I mean, particularly since two thousand and eight, and said, "You know what? We don't want to have a toxic culture. We don't want to have a have a have a, a narcissistic culture where." really the leadership team or the boss is only about I. They, they want a sense of collaboration. They want a sense of we. And I think love is the extreme version of that. You know, it, it's basically saying, I mean, a bit like you, the description uh, of uh, back in Detroit of, you know, we want our dealers to love us because actually that translates into a much more emotional relationship. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, we are people, you know, and actually we we do we do want to do business with people that we get on with and we believe in. And I think the other thing that for me is has been a driver. I mean, I've always looked at this from the internal side, you know, the company culture, but also the customer side, the customer experience side. And I think one of the things that has become really, you know, even more true um, is that why would you spend your money? when you all you get is a very transactional experience why would you you know and 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 if companies want loyalty and they want you know long-term relationships with their customers then actually they need to work hard at, at creating that relationship and i think that's where for me the the two sides of i mean since i started the company spirit and over the last couple of years since i've been you know, since I've written the book, then I think the two sides, both the employee side and the customer side, the volumes really turned up on the need for love in business. It's so interesting. Could you give us an example, Mark, of a company that gets it right? My daughter is 29. And and so she's always been quite good at talking to me about don't just talk about the brands you grew up with. And don't talk about the obvious ones. (laughs) And actually, she's 
pointed to, towards a couple. I mean, one in particular is doing quite well in the US as well, is, is a company called BrewDog. And uh, BrewDog is a, is a beer business, you know, and it's had a massive growth over the last, uh, over the last few years. Uh, and I think one of the things that I've, when I started to look at it, uh, and the, it's um, founded by a guy called James Watt. And if you look at the website and you look at the way he speaks and talks, or not just him, but the company, you know, it is, it's in real language. It's not in consultancy speak. You know, mm-hmm. it, it is clearly written in a way that is about engaging his audience, but he, he fundamentally believes in, in, in the principles we're talking about. You know, his view is if I want my, my customers to love my beer, I need to start with my employees loving what they do and, and, and loving the beer and, and loving what it stands for and, and really feeling that they're involved in the, in the direction of the company. Uh, and, and it's become a, uh, it's a $2 billion company. Wow. You know, it's, it's a success story. And I think it's one of those examples. I mean, there's another one that I've come across, a company called Gymshark, which is, again, mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's a, it's a little, it's an early version of a Nike. Yeah, again, there's a, it's a young CEO founder, um, Ben Francis. Um, and one of the interesting things about Gymshark is they've gone public or, or they've, they've, they've had some private equity investment pretty recently. Mm-hmm. And, and the founder did something very interesting. He, he actually... He, he did a video um, which he posted out, which actually talked about his shareholding. And he talked about the, how the company was with the dilution of shares and who was going to earn what. And, and he talked about the fact his original partner was going to leave the business and he'd made some money. And what I found fascinating about it is he did everything that a lot of CEOs wouldn't do. He was just very open and very honest about what he was trying to do with the business uh, and wasn't hiding the fact that actually it had been successful and he'd made some money along the way. But what he was even more interested in about was, or what I found interesting was, again, he started his business because he was a gym bunny. You know, he, he wanted, and he started at a, you know, a university. I mean, like, like so many of these businesses that get founded, he was a college student and he was looking to do something in the spare time he was a gym bunny and he, he started it with supplements. And again, like all these things, he, he couldn't find what he wanted. So sort of did, it, did his own thing and then went into uh, product design for the people working out in gyms. And, and I think he, what he did do, which was so strong, was he, he built it out from those that went to the gym. And, and he built it out based on great product design but also a sense of, you know, we're in it together as a, as a team. And it's all about, you know, us, you and us getting, getting fitter and getting better. And we're going to create products that you love. And, and, I, and therefore, what I admire about them, and I think this is maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, is, is I do think there is a real sea change going on between old style, <laughs> what I call dinosaur behavior leadership, and a best-in-class leadership, and those are two examples. I mean, I think the other example, you know, which is closer to your home, and it'd be interesting to, to, to your views, but Brian Chesky came out very well, obviously founder of Airbnb. Obviously, I don't know the guy, but um, it, it was interesting last July where there were two 
travel companies, if you like, if you, if you don't mind me calling Airbnb a, a travel company, um, Airbnb and British Airways in this country, and both were announcing 25% reductions in their staff. Sure. And I think the way Brian Chesky went about it were, was based on love. You know, the way he talked to his people was he explained that this is what I've read anyway and listened to the podcast, that the rationale for those that were going was nothing to do with their ability to do the job. It was just he needed to go back to the roots. He needed to focus in on the bits of Airbnb that were protectable, and that's where his focus was. And he, you know, used the word love a lot. And, and that's why I thought he came out, the way he dealt with that situation was very good. Now, if you compare and contrast what happened to British Airways, 25% of the workforce was also being fired and they found out via the media. Yeah, yeah. I've actually had an opportunity to work with Brian a few years ago and I found him to be very sincere and to be very clear on what his vision was for his company, which I think is key to this. And you talk about this in your book is, is you can't make your employees love you if, if they don't know what you stand for. And you talked about just a few minutes ago, how important it is, particularly for millennials and Gen Z kids to, to believe in the organizations they work for. And I think it goes to what Simon Sinek talks about in finding your why and how the best companies start with why and continue to focus on why the, the the less great companies start to focus on the how and the what and lose their focus on the why. And again, I'll, I'll use the example of the company that I've studied its history most closely, which is Ford. And again, this is something that, that, that Al Mulally saw immediately when he took over as CEO was that the one of the fundamental problems facing Ford Motor Company was not foreign competition, was not uncompetitive labor contracts was not mismanagement, though all these things were major issues. One of the most important problems, the one that he tackled right away, was that the company didn't have a clear vision anymore of what it stood for, of why it existed. And his point was, if we don't know why we're coming to work every day, if we don't know why we're trying to save this company, how are we going to get everybody to do the heavy lifting that's going to be required to save this company? And so the way that he dealt with it was he went to the company's archives and he had the archivists bring him every day a box of, of stuff from when Henry Ford ran the company. And he knew because, you know, Ford was the Apple of the early 20th century and, and Henry Ford was the Steve Jobs of the early 20th century, right down to the analogy that people used to line up by the millions to see every new Ford that came out. And he said, I don't care what you bring me, meeting notes, advertisements, you know, company minutes, whatever. I just want to see what the company was talking about when it was great in its early days. And it took him a few weeks, but he finally found this ad that Henry Ford had taken out in 1924 in the Saturday Evening Post. And it had this picture uh, which was, you know, presumably idyllic in, in 1924 of, of freeways clogged with cars and uh, uh, factories smoking on the horizon and a young couple looking wistfully at this, this, I guess, bucolic scene. But there wasn't the image that captured him. It was what it said at the top. And what it said at the top was opening the highways for all mankind. And then the text of the, of the advertisement talked about that what Ford stood for, as Henry Ford put it, was 
making sure that the people's highways were open and accessible to all the people. And that's what the company was doing at the time, was turning the automobile from a rich man's toy to a means of transportation for the masses. And so Alan had that advertisement blown up and he had it given to every one of his senior executives to put in their office. He had it put everywhere in the company and he had it put in the center of the, of the room where the, the senior leadership team met every week because he wanted people to remember, this is what we stood for. And this is what we're going to stand for again. And that's a reason to save this company. I love that. And boy, that's, does that resonate? I mean, I, I, um, I mean, uh, as you know, because you've, you've, you've read it. So, I mean, one of the areas I talk about in, in the book is, is um, what I call the company spirit. And my start point, just like Alan's, is to go back to the roots. Because that's where I think the answer is. I mean, if, if, if you want to find, if you want to create an authentic business, uh, or you, if you want to go forward in an authentic way, then don't look forward to begin with, look backwards. And you know, I was nodding away when you were talking. It's interesting because I, I don't know whether it was, this would have been exactly the same for Henry Ford. But one of the things I found interesting for me was back in the 1920s, or just after the First World War, it was very much the, um, the style of graphic design that yes. was very much came from the CEO, the founder, working directly with the designer. Uh, and, you know, so the founder would be there and the graphic designer would be there. And, and you know, the, so out of the words of the founder would come the brief. Uh, and I worked on two examples, um, which uh, are, are similar. One, interestingly, another you know, type of automobile company in a way, which is Robert Bosch. If you look back on, on the early posters of Robert Bosch, um, it was all about um, making people's lives better. Yes. And he was all about, um, although he was a product man, he, he, he fundamentally understood that it was about through the use of my product, your life would be better. Whether it was uh, the windscreen wiper, which would allow you to see somebody in front and therefore not run them over or the, the, the I mean, in later times, the, the, the use of, um, of a car radio. And the graphic designer would capture that image. And, and there, there was another one, completely different category, but um, was a, a French drink called Orangina. And again, the, the founder uh, sat, and I think this was in the 1930s rather than 1920s, uh, but he, he sat with, uh, with the graphic designer. And an Orangina was all about the Mediterranean. It was all about you know, the cafe society having this orange drink and, and, and imagining you're sitting in a, you know, on the Côte d'Azur. And that's what was captured in the poster. And, and so I love this idea. That's so interesting that you say that because, in fact, Henry Ford was intimately involved in developing the Ford logo, the font, the script that the Ford name is written in as their logo. He obsessed over it, from what I understand. And it's a great tie back to talking about Airbnb, to talking about Gymshark, to talking about some of these other companies where the passion and the vision and the belief of the founder is communicated so strongly in everything that the company does. And I think that is so powerful. What, what if you are a leader of an old company though? What if you are a leader of a company 
that has lost its original vision, that has has settled into the the mission as so many companies put on their 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 internal documents of increasing shareholder value or or something very unmotivating like that. What can you do to reignite that spark of love with your employees and with your customers? I think we've talked about it. I think the answer is go back to the roots. And, you know, sometimes um, I did some work with a, with a guy who, who founded a company. He, he'd since left. And, and I, had a, I had actually had dinner with the CEO at the time. And I was helping her turn, turn it around because it had lost its way. And it had lost its original spirit. But the founder was still involved in a consultancy capacity. And we had dinner, and, and I, actually, I told him the the Orangina story. And once he'd relaxed a little bit, and we 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 were chatting. We were talking about the roots, and this was a company called Crew Crew Clothing Company. I said to him, actually, I said to him more than once was was actually it's really unusual for me because most times I'd speak to most of the times I don't get to speak to the founder because they're dead. And actually, when you've got somebody live, it's really interesting to actually go back to the kind of why, what was it that gets sometimes lost in time? And I think going back to the Ford example or the Bosch example, but going back to the archives and going back to, you know, the advertising or going back to the story of why what was what was the company doing what how was the company behaving is a very powerful way of getting people to feel engaged with with that company again i mean a little example springs to mind it only plays a cameo role in my book but i did some work with uh, east midland airport in fact I, I i worked with two transportation companies within a year one was uh, what we call the um, east coast main line which is the, the train line that goes from london to scotland and the other was the regional airport and i worked on their company spirit for, uh, for each of them and uh, and the way i do it is you get people in a room and and you have the figurative glass of whiskey <laughs> and everybody's sitting there and people tell a story so i always start with the people who in the room have been involved have, have had the longest time in 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 the company and with east midlands um the oldest guy and he's been there for 30 years or so so this guy john he started his story by not his first day at work he started his story by telling everybody listening that he as a boy he used to go I think he said it on a Sunday and, and would lie down and watch the aircraft take off from this old RAF airfield. And it was the beginning of his love of planes. You know, and then he would then talk about the airport in its early days. Eastman, well, he wasn't called Eastman's Airport at the time. And what became clear uh, as other people joined the conversation was actually the vast majority of people who worked for the airport actually loved planes. <laughs> Interesting and not surprising. And they loved that they loved the whole hustle and bustle of planes and people moving around and, and going from one place to another. Uh, and ironically, it was the same when I worked with the uh, train guys. It's surprise, surprise, they loved trains. You know whether it was, uh, and I always remember in my discovery when I listened to people talk about what it's like to work for the company. I interviewed or I had a chat with a lady who was the cleaner, uh, and she was the lady who cleaned the trains. And she said to me, "She said, I know it sounds weird, but I just love the idea 
of I start at the beginning, I work my way through to the end, and then I see my, my train going up and down the line, and I feel really good. And therefore, what tends to happen, to go back to your question, is by reliving the roots and the story of the company, two things happen. Those that have been there for a long time, they remember why they went there in the first place. And I'm sure that must have happened with some of your, with some of the Ford people, is that they remembered why they, they loved working for Ford. And those new employees on the other side of things, they would never have heard the story. And because they hear the story in a real, authentic, human way, it makes them realize that actually the company they're working for has got a set of values, has got a set of behaviors that they believe in. And therefore, you know, and therefore the start point isn't process or strategy. The start point is belief. Actually, you know what? I really believe the company because I've heard the story. And once people hear the story, then they think, okay, you know, actually I really feel engaged in, in what this company is trying to do. That's so interesting. That story reminds me of a, a train story of my own, which makes very much the same point that you're making about employee engagement, employee passion. And that was uh, one time when I was riding the Shinkansen in Japan. And I was actually coming back from uh, uh, Toyota City uh, and going back to, to Tokyo. And it was myself and, and a, a woman from Toyota. And we were the only ones in the first class car. It was a Sunday, I think, or something like that. And when we were approaching Mount Fuji, the conductor came into the car, bowed very deeply and told us in Japanese that in a few minutes, we'd be able to see Fujisan in the, uh, in the, in the distance. And he waited with us in the car until Mount Fuji came into appearance. And then he gestured towards the mountain and said, you know, Fujisan. And it was a very beautiful sight. And my, 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 uh, uh, guide, if you will, from Toyota, you know, she thanked him profusely and he seemed so proud. And when he left the car, you know, bowed very deeply when he left the car, I, I said to her, I said that that was really sweet, but it's like, why, why was this such a personal thing for him? And, and she said, you have to understand that in the culture of Japanese railways, he, by doing his job is, is allowing you as a customer to have this beautiful experience of seeing Mount Fuji on this beautiful day. And he, that gives him pride in his work. And that pride is what is why these trains are so well run, why they're so clean, why they're so efficient. And it really stuck with me because it's exactly what you're saying, right? It's, it's, it's tapping in to that pride in what you're doing. Not, it's not just a job. It's, it's a service that you're providing. No. And I, I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to be on that same train Obviously not with you, but and, and and unfortunately it was cloudy. <laughs> so oh no, <laughs> so we were uh, so we missed um, seeing that that beautiful view. But the principle is the same. It is pride. It is it is belief. It, it's feeling good about the company you work for, and actually wanting to share that. And it was so, and that's what um, sadly, you know, if I go back to the railway, the railway had been had various different levels of management it had it was 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 publicly owned then privately owned then publicly owned again it just had lost its way as to what it stood for uh, and yet actually the answer was was in the roots and the answer w was actually 
you know, that pride. And actually for that particular, you know, that railway line, it was the railway line of the fastest steam engine, Mallard. And so sort of similar to uh, the Shinkansen. The Shinkansen of of its day. Exactly. And it was. And there was real pride in, in the fact that actually the engine and the engines that ran on that train, on that railway, were the fastest in the world. And I think the difficulty is, uh, you know, where does it all go wrong? It, it, it goes wrong because, you know, leaders don't understand the emotional side of the company they, they work for. Uh, and and they, they look at it in a very process-orientated way. And, and, and I'm sure you've done this many a time in, in your own work. But if you look at uh, most websites, I mean, most websites have a, an about us part they make an attempt to tell the, the story or the history of the company, but they do it in a very factual way. They do it in a, oh, well, we opened this store in this place at this date, and then we expanded, and then we did this, and we then had this product, et cetera, et cetera. But they make no attempt to talk about the emotional side. They don't talk about the behavior, the ups and downs, the, the struggles, you know, the, 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 the ins and outs. And I think that's what makes people feel engaged in the, the company, the employees feel engaged in the company when they hear the story, because no company's perfect. I mean, that's yeah. why I loved reading your book, you know, because obviously this was long before we got together, but it was, uh, I remember it as if it was yesterday. I mean, I was, I was actually working with a company called Never Fail, which was a software company. And it bizarrely had a very small office in near outside London, but its main sales operation was outside of Austin, Texas. And therefore I was working um, with the CEO and he had, he had arrived at the company quite early, uh, a few weeks earlier. And we worked together before uh, and he knew that the start point for his job as a CEO in turning that company around was a bit like the, the description of Alan, which is we need to get back to the sense of purpose. We need to get back to the, to the why. We need to get back to how was the company behaving when it was at its best, which is obviously the journey I, I took, never fail on. But actually, <laughs> I remember it now, actually. I, I'd, I'd got Martin, the CEO, to buy your book and, 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 and read <laughs> well, it. You. you know, be, well, it, it was just because it was part of me making... One of the things I try to do with the CEOs I work with is get them to think differently, to get them to have some fresh insights and fresh perspectives. And of course, you know, one of the things about what you talk about, and, and obviously what I talk about in terms of the business case for love, is if you need a few winners. So you need the Fords of the world. You need the Allens of the world to actually show that by doing this in the right way and going back into time, going back to the roots and use that as the launch pad to go forward, it can be a success. And that's the story I was, I was, I wanted Martin to uh, share. Well, you know, it's so interesting because it, it's so clear where this original passion comes from and, and the difference it makes in companies. And it's so clear what happens when you lose that. But where in that conversation, you know, I, I, I'm just thinking through all these companies we talked about, you know, at some point, the railroad you were talking about Made the, made the decision consciously or unconsciously that all that mattered was the bottom line. At some point along the way, Ford stopped believing in its mission of opening the highways to all mankind and, and started becoming essentially a commodity producer of lackluster vehicles. 
And you could probably point pretty clearly to where that that point was, certainly in the in the 1980s, if not before. And you look at the airport you talked about it. At some point, it just became you know another regional commuter airport. How do you justify the ROI on love? Well, great question. I think the ROI of those companies where both employees and customers really love that company for what it stands for is the size that the company becomes and its sustainability. And of course, you know, the most obvious example is Apple. You know, I don't know how much, what is it now, a $2 trillion company? And therefore, I make no apology sometimes in in going back to the sort of go-to example, because it shows that if you behave in the right way, and it's not just about love. It's about how they behave. It's about the way they innovate. It's about the fact they, in my language, uh, embrace all of the best-in-class company behaviors. But they, they operate in a way which is ultimately, ironically, not about making money yeah. first. You know, it's a, and I think that's the thing is that I, I've, always, <laughs> I've always found, and it's one of my little throwaway lines, is, 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 if, is, if, is if you if a company only ever focuses on the number, it never gets there, you know, because the number just takes over all behavior. Whereas actually, if you focus on what you believe in and you focus on the right products and you focus on the employee experience and the customer experience, you get to the number. And, you know, the apples of the world are, are the perfect example of, of a company that, that does that. But at the end of the day, rightly or wrongly, it comes down to leadership. Because, you know, there are many people who run companies who find what we're talking about, this very discussion, they would just find impossible to to believe in. And they struggle with empathy. They struggle with care. They struggle, struggle, certainly struggle with the word love. Because in their world, what they need to do is be operationally efficient. And sadly, you know, the best example of a company that I think has destroyed its love both in terms of employees and its customers, is British Airways. Uh, yes. and, and, you know, Willie Walsh took a decision as the CEO that he, he drove a very transactional business. Uh, and I believe, and obviously it's different right at this moment because of COVID, but uh, I, I, the long-term success of that business is not guaranteed be- sure. because there, is, there becomes a tipping point which I think they are now at, where the customer rejects it because it doesn't stand for anything anymore, and the employees reject it for how they are treated. And therefore, why would you work for them as an employee, and why would you spend money with them as a customer? Well, and that's so key, is is it's not just the employees, as you talk about in your book, it's also about the customer experience, and we touched on that a little bit. Apple is a great example as you say, of a company that is laser focused on how it treats its customers to the point that they have really zigged where the rest of the tech industry, unfortunately, has zagged. And as as Tim Cook puts it very declaratively, our customers are not our product. And you look at almost every other tech company has made their customers either a parallel revenue stream to their products or indeed their primary revenue stream. And that, to me, at, at a certain level, that that really shows us a, a contempt for the customer if, if you're treating the customer as a product. Whereas Apple, 
to use your your language is showing their customers how much they love them by not doing that. And it's it's created a very clear choice for customers in the marketplace. And I think you're seeing this, you know, where where you know customers vote with their with their pocketbooks, with their wallets. And a lot of that goes to how it's not just the underlying technology, but how Apple treats its customers and the customer experience. And it's it comes from within. It comes from a decision that you make as a as a leader to say actually, and you know, one of my six best in class company behaviors is creating the mindset of of memorable customer experiences. And it comes from that mindset of saying, let's start with the vision of what is the customer experience we're trying to create and work backwards to the product. And yet so many other companies start the other way around, which is here's our product, how are we going to sell it? To me, that that is short term because you, you don't have that level of equity. You don't have that level of emotional engagement. And it's it's that emotional engagement. I mean, no, no, again, as I, as I said, no company is perfect. Every company has its ups and downs. But actually, during the downtimes, that level of emotional engagement is often what protects that company, that equity that people have, either as an employee or a customer, to say, you know what? I'm going to forgive the company for making that mistake, or I'm going to forgive it for doing that, or I'm still going to be loyal to it. And whereas those companies that are just transactional, uh, you know, the moment somebody else comes along with a better or a cheaper product, the customer's gone. And actually, yeah. most of the employees have gone as well. Such an important point. You have a chapter in your book called How the Boss Can Be Loved. Now, Machiavelli famously said that it was better to be feared than loved. Why, as a leader, should you want to be loved? Because our employees are looking for something beyond fear. And I think this is a generational side. And I think it goes back a little bit to our millennials and Generation Z, but it's not just them. I think people, people won't put up with a toxic culture anymore. They won't put up with bad behavior. You know, arguably, you know, Me Too was part of that as well. And therefore, the boss can be loved, but it starts from within. It starts from their own principles, their own values, their own desire to say, you know what, I want to build an organization where we lead from the heart and followed by the head. You know, you still need the business bit. <laughs> you still need the head bit. You know, Apple would not be Apple without brilliant product, but it's exactly. where you start that's the key for me. That's so powerful. So if I'm a leader and I'm listening to this and I'm saying, right, Mark, you've convinced me, you've made the business case for love. What's a couple of things that I could do right now to, one, show my employees that I love them and make them love this company as much as I do. And two, show my customers that I love them and make them love this brand as much as I do. Well, the first thing I'd say is go and listen to people and really listen, not go and talk to people or talk at people. Because for me, the first one of the first ways of, of getting people on board or feeling positive and uh, about the company they work for is for them to feel listened to and actually their voice matters so my immediate comment would be just just you know take your job hat off take your boss hat off and, and go and sit and talk to people and likewise with customers you know go and don't go and sit and have a chat with the customer uh, uh, and don't try and sell them anything i mean one of my as we talked about japan 
a while ago. I mean, one of my favorite phrases is is uh, kind of open kimono, <laughs> which is, I think, a sense of you know nakedness. You know, open the kimono and and be open to what comes out, to listen and to really understand how people are feeling. And that was that's that would be my start point. I mean, the the other obvious thing to do, you know, for for me is actually be authentic. You know, don't try and be something you're not. And I think that's one of the challenges I, I see a lot of within, a, frankly, a lot of men of a certain age is they get to a point of, you know, they get promoted. They might be the CEO. Uh, they might be running the company or running a leadership team. And actually, they've got there because they've got a process or they're good at operations. But in reality, they're not true to themselves. And they, they end up winning wearing this skin and quite often to me that's often when you get bullying that's that's often when you get poor communication because actually the leader is is just scared of being found out because they're not comfortable in who they are Uh, and one of the interesting things i found with uh, you know almost you know almost all of my clients in their own way it doesn't matter what company they're working in or what country they're working that they feel good about themselves that they're not they they know they're not perfect they don't try and be perfect um they're they're comfortable in who they are and therefore that then that allows them with their employees to be to be real and that's a very powerful start point it's great advice Mark, thank you so much. How can people uh, learn more about the Business Case for Love and about your work? Well, the obvious thing is to uh, buy the book, <laughs> which is now, well, it is available around the world. Uh, and I know I have a few fans in, in uh, California uh, who have read it and have commented and, and, and have, uh, have reviewed it. So that will be the start point. Um, LinkedIn, uh, obviously, and my website is uh, www.thecompanyspirit.com. We will put links to your book and to your website in the show notes for people to to check out. Mark, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. Take care. Take care, Bryce, and stay safe as well. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. To subscribe to Bryce's free newsletter, visit his website, brycehoffman.com. And don't forget to follow Bryce on social media. You can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Bryce Hoffman, all one word. That's B-R-Y-C-E-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. And to learn more about Bryce's company, Red Team Thinking, visit us at redteamthinking.com.